I'm sitting in the passenger seat of a car, driving away from Amsterdam. I don't know the man's name who is driving, and he's probably forgotten mine already. He tells me he was in the military, and even though he has a trim black coat on, he looks strong. Why I chose to hop into this car, I have no idea. We don't talk much, even though his English is fine. He agrees to drop me off at a petrol station 20 minutes down the road, but it feels like forever. Even with the fast highway speeds, the silence seems to slow us down. The quiet heats my body more than the car engine. This is awkward. Why aren't we talking? In the distance, I see a petrol station on my upcoming left. It begins to get larger. He pulls in, drops me off by the door, and speeds off. I feel a little shaky. It's a lot to put your trust into a complete stranger. It's like you're holding your breath underwater the whole time, floating in cold pools of insecurity. I gasped once he pulled back onto the highway, like my head had just hit the surface of the ocean. I think I felt a little on edge because, while I was disappointed, the other times I had hitched, the car would fill with conversation. I could win someone over with my stories and banter in a minute. But this guy was just quiet. I was looking to make a spontaneous friend, and he, well, I don't even know what his motives were. But I was closer now, on the move. To be fair, the Netherlands is not hard to get through. It takes two hours with traffic to get from north to south. So I didn't have to go very far, but I was going at it alone. Okay. I stand on the curb of the station as he peels away, with the speed of dropping off contraband and wanting to split. I catch my breath for a moment. And then hear a, Hey, where are you going? I look up, and a man, a bit older than me, maybe in his 30s, tall and thin, is waving at me. He had a thick beard and shaggy brown hair. My curiosity gets the best of me, and I begin to walk over. I'm a little hesitant because, well, why is he soliciting me? I thought I was the beggar here. Does he, does he know that I'm hitching? He asks me again where I'm going. Um... Uh, um, uh, Eindhoven, Eindhoven. Oh, that's where I live. Do you want me to give you a ride? Huh. Weird coincidence. Hmm. Um. Uh. Something tells me that this is weird. Why is he encouraging me to get into his car? Maybe this isn't the best idea. And I can wait until I can chat someone else up a bit more. But my body and mind are not in alignment because I open the passenger side, shove my bag at the base of my feet, and slam the door. He finishes filling up, turns on his car, and speeds off. I didn't know who I had just decided to drive with, but it was too late. He was the one in the driver's seat. Our trips are influenced by those who come along for the ride. We see things about ourselves, our relationships, and the world when we have another pair of eyes next to us. Today on the podcast, we're traveling together. We will dissect how traveling with others influences our time, how to choose wisely who you travel with, and what being far from home ultimately says about our need to connect. We will talk to best friends, parents, and coworkers who have all had to travel with someone else sewn to their hip. Will our relationships solidify or be destroyed? Let's find out. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. We see more when we travel with others. Each perspective is irreplicable. It's formed over the years of an individual's experience. Pecking order. One's home life. Religious upbringing. Political siblings, Their backyard. The climate they were born in. Whether or not they got that bike for their birthday. 
all of these things make up a worldview. And it enriches our travels when we have more minds on a scene. I remember when I was traveling with my friend Carla, who we're going to meet at the end of this episode. We traveled throughout Prague together. I was ebullient because I was able to explore my favorite city, a place I had spent five months in with my favorite person. One afternoon, I brought her to Prague Castle, a building that is older than the country we came from. Prague Castle is the largest ancient castle in the world. We mused around this expansive courtyard, big enough to hold a Coachella theater. As I pointed and told her history tidbits, you know, someone died here, someone got pushed out of a window here, she pauses and just says, this would be a really good place to play tag. I paused and was like, Carla, this is one of the oldest castles in the world. So many people have fought and died and sacrificed for this place. And the only thing that you can think of is, tag, you're it. And I tapped her and ran away. We continued to run around the castle grounds, zipping around the history walks and groups of Italians singing loudly in the courtyard. Someone else's view can add so much magic to our travels. And that's what Rob and Chris want to pass on to their sons. They are the writers of Two Travel Dads and travel with their children all the time. The height and mind of their kids adjusts Rob and Chris's viewpoint, like focusing a camera lens. Maybe their kids point to a metallic bug on a rock or question why the stars seem so far away. The fresh eyes of a child invites much more wonder to their travels. We do typically travel with our kids and the boys are awesome little travelers. They're great about flying. They're great about weird hotel situations. <laughs> they also love a nice resort where they have their own bedroom. <laughs> Rob and Chris homeschool their children because they believe in giving their kids an alternative form of education through hands-on experience. Why read about the great American landscapes when you can just go live it? Man, we've had some really wild, strange adventures together. <laughs> I think one of one of my favorites that we've done just this year, in May, we went to Colorado and we were in Denver and then we went up into the mountains and did Rocky Mountain National Park. And when we were up there, we had a day where we did a Jeep tour up into Rocky Mountain National Park and it was open air and the kids just loved it. And we saw moose and elk and eagles and ospreys and hawks and it was just really really cool it's 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 one of those eco tour where there's that um, the ability to get, get out and basically go on safari but here in america and getting to do things like that the open air experience that is just brimming with wildlife that is um one of our favorite things and getting to do that in rocky mountain national park with the kids i think is one of my favorite things that we've gotten to do this year. But having children hasn't stripped away their spontaneous adventures. Right after that, Chris and I flew off to Croatia and we went sailing around Croatia. And that was just, that was incredible getting to wander medieval streets and ports and swim naked in the Mediterranean. <laughs> you know, the cool stuff. Although having children hasn't hindered their travels, when the kids tag along, Rob and Chris are more attuned to how locals view their family's presence. We do perceive the world differently now that we are traveling with kids because now we can see we're much more, I don't want to say guarded, but we're much more aware of being, you know, out as a family. And, you know, being a family of two dads, we actually, believe it or not, we're not the norm. <laughs> so, um, I think we are much more aware of people looking at us and staring at us than we were of it just being like Chris and I out traveling. When it's all of us, I mean, we do get cautious certain places just because you can tell that people are either uncomfortable by our presence or curious by our presence. So I think our perception or how we observe the people in the places we go 
has changed a lot since traveling with kids because now we have this new kind of thought of, huh, are, do the kids notice that people are staring at us? And it's we're just much more conscious of those around us versus before when we could just go places and whatever. We're just another set of guys, whether we're you know partners or friends just traveling. Now it's very clear that, you know, we are a family who's traveling and yeah, there's, there's times where it can actually be very uncomfortable. So our perception of the places we visit has changed a lot with kids because now it's just much more visible to us how people respond to our presence. I asked Rob, how do they choose the places they travel to as openly gay parents? We're not traveling to places like, you know, the Middle East or predominantly Muslim countries where the penalty is still death for, you know, a public display of affection between two people of the same sex. So, I mean, we're not those type of travelers who are like, you know what, let's push the limits. Let's just see, we want to go explore this country. We know it's illegal for us to actually be there together. We, we don't do that. So it's something that um, we've been very careful about in going to places where at no point should we legally be in any danger, right? So I know like if you, if you browse lots of different travel blogs, especially, you know, run by LGBT, either individuals or couples, you'll hear takes on, well, we visited this country and yeah, it's, it was illegal for us to be there together, but we were careful. And this is what the gay culture is actually like in this country. That's not how we roll because we don't want to encourage families like us, couples like us to go to places where, you know, if somebody wants to uphold that existing law and, um, you know, report you to the police and get you thrown in jail, we don't want to encourage anybody to be visiting those places because, I mean, I think that's irresponsible. <laughs> but um, so we've avoided them. So the places that we do go, we are clearly welcome it's maybe like a one-off person who isn't excited to have us visiting their country or their town or whatever. But in general, we're not traveling to places that put us at risk. Even though they travel to places that they shouldn't have any problems, they still bump into the microaggressions that travel with gay couples. So we haven't had anything where we've actually genuinely felt unsafe with the kids. So, I mean, I think that's something that is great about traveling with kids is that people are aware, oh my gosh, you have children with you. I need to act like a human. We did have a situation not too long after Oliver, our oldest, after he was born, where we checked into a bed and breakfast and repeatedly through the check-in and even after one night, the owner and manager of the bed and breakfast repeatedly insisted that he had an additional bedroom that one of us could sleep in and made it extremely clear that our family was not welcome in the family suite <laughs> at the B&B that we were staying at. And we ended up just like checking out early. And we've had other times where we've, you know, checked into like a highway motel on a long road trip late at night. And it's been very clear that, no, we've got a room with two beds for you, you know, like that. But with kids, typically it's, not something that people are really aggressive and forceful about. It, but maybe we've been really lucky about that. Right. <laughs> but then, but then it's also, which I'm even like here at home in Seattle, which is a wonderfully liberal welcoming place. We are asked nearly, I would say 70% of times that we go out to eat if we need separate checks, which that might seem like nothing to like think about, but when it's really clear that you're a family and you're sitting down to dinner, I mean, you, you typically wouldn't ask a family if they wanted separate checks for everybody. Like I was saying, this last week, we were just down in Bend, Oregon. At the end of the week, on I think it was Saturday afternoon, we were getting our lunch and we realized that the entire time that we'd been down there, not once did we asked if, were we asked if we needed separate checks. Oh my gosh, nobody has asked us that even once we then like started to take stock of, oh my gosh, everywhere we've been in this community has just been welcoming and we've been treated completely normal. And people make reference to us as dads whenever they're like chatting to us. It's, it's not 
ever even questioned. So experiences like that, I think are really cool. And that's something that now is, you know, very much visible to us when we have those really great welcoming experiences is that um, it really stands out in our mind as what we would love to experience everywhere. (laughs) So that's what it's like to be a straight family. This story really surprised me and was something that I, as a straight woman, have never experienced. Because as a lady, it's expected that my male counterpart will be paying anyways. However, Rob and Chris see how it's necessary for minorities to continue to explore. Their travels aren't educational just for their children, but in how they want to educate the world on what families and lifestyles can look like. I think it is absolutely good and responsible to travel to places where it's unexpected that you would be traveling there as a woman, or it's unexpected that we would be traveling there as a gay couple or as a gay family and exposing the people in those places to a family like ours. Like for example, I met with a lady a couple months ago who was representing a region in Northern Italy. And initially she was like, Oh great. This will be, this will be great. I I think you've got some really great content and I think you would be a great fit for some of the destinations that I represent. And then, um, all of a sudden she put two and two together and she's like, oh, actually, I just realized, no, I, I was thinking of somebody else. Actually, if you come to our area, you probably are not going to feel welcome at all. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. She's like, yeah, this might not be a good fit. And it was one of those situations where in my mind, I was like, well, legally we can travel there. And there's no bars between us being able to go there and explore and so, I mean, why wouldn't we? And so it's that question of finding the balance of a place that it's totally legal for us to travel. It's totally safe for us to travel. And then we've got the ability to show people in those destinations that, hey, there's families like us out there and start to normalize for them the type of family that they might see. Does that make sense? We can't we can't influence people and help change people's perception or even just like make them aware of families like ours without being out there. I want to encourage people to go to places where you are not the norm and where people are going to give you those looks because how else are they going to get used to like people who aren't them? (laughs) When we travel, we don't only expand our perceptions, but we bring the world to different communities. We can show them things that they've never seen before. It's similar to the cycles of a Ferris wheel. With each pull up or down, we get a different glittering view of the circus below us. But only by going through the full rotation do we see the full picture. I stare out at the gray, barren highway Nervous that this would be another silent ride. But within three beats, I know more about this dude than the previous one. I'm Rowan, he said. He had the most interesting accent. Like all of the words were twisted in his mouth and strung together like beads on a necklace. No space in between them. He sounded kind of Dutch. I'm from South Africa. Ah, that makes sense. I click and remember the messy relations between the Dutch, the British, and the most southern tip of our mother continent. But I'm still a little apprehensive, because why did this guy pick me up? I couldn't, I don't, I don't want to entertain the stories of women travelers being body snatched and sold into the Albanian sex trade. (sighs) I came to Amsterdam for a meditation class. Okay, okay. Someone who talks about Dharma is not going to murder me. The car fills with conversation about karma, traveling, the afterlife, colonialism, and consciousness. I am loving every second of this drive. We pass by browning fields that will one day be lined with vibrant tulips, lying on the earth like a flattened rainbow. In the distance, 
the sails of windmills slowly spin in the October breeze. And after however many minutes, Rowan tangents and says, Do you like art? Oh, yeah, absolutely, I said. Well, Dutch Design Week is happening right now, and a bunch of my friends are going to be there. It's in Eindhoven. Do you want to go? Um, yeah, totally. I had planned to meet my couch surfer later that evening, and we were way ahead of schedule. I actually was surprised we were almost in the city. (laughs) This is such a tiny country. The fields were replaced by buildings, and we enter the heart of Eindhoven. Much of the historical buildings were destroyed in World War II, and have since been replaced by sleek high-rises. We drive up to a giant warehouse, which gives off Bushwick vibes that had started trending in the 21st century. We park the car, and I leave all of my stuff in the front seat, and we walk in together. We wandered through this maze of art installations. It felt like so many familiar art spaces of my youth. Mass Mocha in North Adams, PS1 in Queens, the Visual Arts Building at SUNY Purchase. Rowan and I muse through with tons of other people walking around us, children running dangerously close to installations, and art critics in black asymmetrical clothing and hair to match, standing and judging. I took it all in. I didn't wake up this morning thinking I would be here. We walked around and he would point at little details of each installation that I didn't even notice. We discussed each art piece with a false confidence of gallery organizers. It was so much fun to just goof around with this guy. We ventured to the outside courtyard in the center of the warehouse as the sun begins to set on this chilly October day. Circular bonfires dotted the courtyard. They were wide-brimmed cast-iron fire pits, sleek and stylish, unlike my campfires at home. Small flames licked the edges of the lattice fire pit covering. I wish I had a marshmallow, but someone hands me a beer instead. Everyone is drinking and chatting around the fire. Rowan eventually finds some of his friends and introduces me. Uh, who are you? One of them asks. Oh, I'm Adrian. I'm from New York and have been backpacking around Europe for the past few months. How did you two meet? One of the friends asks. Oh, (laughs) Rowan picked me up at a petrol station like a few hours ago. Wait, wait, wait. You were hitchhiking? Alone? And Rowan picked you up? Yeah. His friends made eye contact and one says, classic Rowan, and throws back his beer. We then continued to chat about the Netherlands, art, and the rest of my travels. I am guzzling down the beautiful spontaneity and beer at the same time. This is the best part about traveling. How some days you have no idea where you will end up, who you will meet, and how they will influence your day. I took a moment and just breathed in the smoke and spontaneity of it all. It amazed me how easy it was to travel with Rowan. For someone who was a near stranger, we got along impeccably well. But the people you choose to travel with can't always be someone you pick up on the side of the road. The person you choose to travel with is a select breed. They have to be able to roll with every punch that the world throws at you. Missing flights, losing cell phones, or being cool when you want to hook up with that hot Spanish guy. Whatever that connection or chemistry is cannot be manufactured. What makes a trip isn't the perfect picture photos. It's the times you see how you both handle the insanity of the world together. But I have found that when you put yourself out there, the universe typically matches you with the right companion. That is how Sid and Sorsha met. Sid is from Denmark and Sorsha is from Scotland. But in their late teens, early 20s, they both serendipitously picked the same summer camp to work at in New Jersey. And when we throw ourselves into a sea of new people, we are constantly on the lookout for someone to connect with. And once they clicked, they quickly found common denominators in each other. I do remember kind of thinking to myself like, oh, this is someone that 
kind of is okay to accept my crazy ramblings when it comes to creative stuff and is coming back at me with like the same amount of stuff and is making it reality. So I, I do like, yeah, I remember that it was creativity and kind of art that mm-hmm. definitely was the first steps of like, oh, we're on the same wavelength. This is someone I can chill with. And also like, if we're honest, we're both really weird. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, like... We found our we, we found our brand of weird in each other and we went, ah, kindred spirit. <laughs> Since then, they have both moved back home and have been friends for ten years. But the distance still doesn't feel that far. I always feel super proud and kind of accomplished when they're like, Oh, like you guys are from different countries and I feel like it's an accomplishment and, and I feel like really proud of like the friendship that we've built just yeah. because it's it's not really it's not an easy thing actually. It's for me, it feels like it's been really easy. Well, yeah, from an outsider's perspective, it's like, oh, so you guys actually made the effort to talk and to go and visit each other. And it's like, well, yeah, of course we did. Like, she's my friend. Yeah. But like, I guess for some people, they might just be like, wow, okay, that's that's a lot of effort. And it's like, well, I guess it it was effort. But like you said, it didn't feel like it. I think just because we're both interested in travel, it's strengthened everything about our friendship. Since their relationship is founded in travel, that's what they love to do together. Travel is the kindling that keeps their relationship aflame from afar. We do this thing where we give each other Christmas gifts each year, and I wanted to do something special, so I wanted to do like a a small trip somewhere, like, and that was going to be my gift to Sorsha. And I did this like little suitcase with like travel stickers on it and everything. Oh, you fully made me cry. <laughs> and I did, oh, it's, like, oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I gave you a teapot in the shape of a zebra's head. And I love the teapot. <laughs> it's, it's like proudly displayed. And like, it is like, it is the most epic, the most epic of holidays yeah. for sure. Because basically the idea was that I wasn't going to tell Sorsha where we're going until we were in the airport. I had to cave a week before I had managed. It was so hard, but I'd managed not to say it. I was like, okay, maybe I should probably tell Georgia where we're going because she needs a fair chance to kind of pack and stuff. Um, so I didn't tell her what we we're doing. I just told her we we're going to Morocco. We we're going to Marrakech. And then we we're going to Portugal afterwards to kind of like, because uh, it's on the way home. So we wanted to do like a multiple thing because we were going to, for two weeks. Yeah. We went to Marrakesh uh, and we went on this like epic road trip afterwards with a guide um, that lasted like five days. Yeah. We went to the Sahara and like up in the mountains and like off-roading. It was so cool. It was so beautiful. And we met like this nomad family in the middle of like nowhere in like this like desert uh, mountain valley. And like it was just stunning and so like so different from anything I think we've both done oh yeah Um, for sure like I've never experienced like and I think like the landscape everything about it was just so alien to us and it was just stunning from start to finish yeah although they get to experience the most spectacular moments together that also means they have seen each other in their most scraggly moments and somehow still want to talk to each other when they return home. I, one night, we're in medication, it's the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, I'm just like, I'm feeling really ill. So we both got food poisoning, basically. From a really nice restaurant. Too. From a really nice restaurant. And we had a bit of a struggle in, in Marrakesh, basically, oh, like a lot of harassment. And it was like really tough, actually. Um, so it kind of put a damper in the spirits. And then we get sick, um, <laughs> like really, really sick. Oh, and um, That was the day we were going to the donkey sanctuary as well. Yeah. And you were feeling a bit better, but I was yeah. just, I was just getting into the throes of it. Yeah, and I remember yeah. one point I was like, hey, do you guys have a bathroom? I need to leave. <laughs> yeah, it was, oh my God, such a mess. Um, but then we like get okay feeling to go on this road trip. And we start this road trip and like Sorsha is just not getting better. Like it was getting so much worse. And <laughs> I just oh. remember like I was so worried and we're like thinking like, should we cancel the rest of this trip? And we drew in for like two or three days. And we're yeah. in like Dadis Valley in like the middle of nowhere, like one day away from Sahara Desert. And like that was and like it was, the whole... it was so hot as well. Yeah. I'm Scottish. I am not used to like 
anything above mm, a hot 20 degrees Celsius. <laughs> and we were looking at, ooh, 45. Yeah, it was awful. Um, <laughs> beautiful, but awful. Uh, we we're, were suffering. Um, and um, so basically, so I was just like extremely ill and I was really worried. And we we're talking about like, just like, um, like canceling the trip before time and like going home because like there was like no way we could uh, go to the Sahara Desert with like Sorcia being this ill. And I just remember like we're 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 just like sitting in this like beautiful hotel in the middle of Dadis Valley and like eating dinner and like everything is like super beautifully set up. No, and- no, I'm, I'm sorry. Can I? Because I was telling uh, my friend Anna about this yesterday. Oh, I was yeah. like, I think one of my lowest points in my life. I mm. love food. Food is like I love yeah. different types of food. And we were. It was like a four star, five star hotel, <laughs> and the meal looked glorious and I had plain rice because I was I was so nauseous and I remember looking across at you and I was like just describe the food to me and you just said it tastes Moroccan and I was like no I need more I need flavors I need to experience this through you and you're like I don't know what to tell you man it's good and I was like said no I was went like it's kind of tomatoey <laughs> I was like I can see that <laughs> But I just remember like trying to like make you feel like comfortable and I was like, oh look at this view, isn't it pretty? And you just looked like you were suffering. And I like <laughs> I don't appreciate you doing this for my sake and like sitting in the I guess like my favorite story memory is just like you were sitting in this hard desert. It's the sun is set and like it's a starry night and we like have this we had this entire uh, camp wow. for ourselves. Yeah which was amazing because usually there's other travelers as well. We had the entire camp to ourselves. We don't like other people. (laughs) It was was beautiful. These guys that had the camp were very sweet and they were just like doing the best to like uh, make us feel comfortable and like have fun. And like you were just suffering through it. And I was just like, do you want to see the sunrise in the morning on the sand dune? And you were just like, oh, and I just felt so bad. But at the same time, it's kind of like my favorite memory because it's just, you know, like so extreme. You're in this like environment that's so foreign to you. And it's like, like you can't believe you're there. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I mean, for as ill as I was, mm-hmm. it's still just the most spectacular thing I've ever done in my life and like I think one of my favorite memories from the trip is just you and me sitting in the desert Mm -hmm. playing cards yeah yeah because it was just it was such a moment of like it was silent like there's no one else in the world and it was just like hey I'm having an amazing time with my best friend in the world and we're just playing cards and just chilling and it was so nice just to have that moment of pure tranquility. Mm -hmm. They balance each other's energy. They know when to be supportive and when they need support because nothing braids a relationship like holding each other's hair back. I think that entire like Morocco trip just kind of like deepened the friendship that we have to like an, an entirely another level. It just kind of feels like that, that we that got even closer even though I'm not sure that's like possible when we're like basically siblings. <laughs> <laughs> like you've now seen me at my absolute worst. Same. And, like, and you're still friends with me. So like kudos to you. <laughs> Nothing that can happen now. Sid and Sorsha have seen each other at their grossest points, but they still manage to provoke the kind of laughter that only old friends can stir. So what's their secret to not murdering each other when they're traveling? Yeah, so, and we, because we talk about everything, we're very, like, good at communicating and just kind of, it's just kind of, there's just like, no judgment there. There's, like, just yes. only, like, lots of love and lots of support and just, like, lots of fun. And I really, yeah. I, I really think that's, like, helped, like, that Friendship Foundation has really helped when we're traveling, like. Look, it's like you said at the beginning, we found we're the same brand of weird Yeah. So it works. (laughs) Oh my God, yeah. With all that they've been through, their friendship is much simpler than it seems. Because when everything is stripped away, it's just them, a small deck of cards and the stars. 
Once the festival started winding down, Rowan said, Okay, I'm going to bring you to your couch surfer spot now. We drive out of the festival and watch the darkness begin to cascade down the city. We pull up to an apartment complex and Rowan parks his car and turns the engine off. He sits. And I sit. And I had this strange feeling while I was traveling, as if I've never been anywhere else and I've always been with the people that I was currently with. An expedited relationship, delivered faster than the world's best postal service. I can't explain it, but I felt like I had been with Rowan for forever. And I didn't feel like I could leave him yet. Rowan, I don't really want to stay here. I'm having so much fun. Then he asks, well, when is your flight tomorrow? Um, around 10 a.m. Look, I work pretty close to the airport, and if you want, you could stay at my place and I can drop you off in the morning. Okay, great. Let's go get some food. He calls his roommates and tells them that he's going to pick up some food. Oh, and by the way, he has a friend staying the night. I was really lucky that Rowan was down to keep traveling with me because finding alignment with someone isn't guaranteed. I felt like I was at this point where I could count on Rowan. We were in this together and I kind of knew that he would say yes. But you can't always rely on those that you travel with because people and situations are always unpredictable. What sounds like a seamless plan on the plane won't always present itself once you've landed. There are moments when we need to know when to be a part of the group and when to cut loose. Brian from Ambitious Trekker had those exact expectations in his mind when he landed in Cusco. He had decided to hike the Inca Trail with a coworker and two of her friends. It didn't really matter that he didn't know the other people that well because this was going to be a bonding experience. He envisioned the four of them skipping through the Andes, singing 80s songs, and becoming the best of friends. But travel often presents you with situations that you need, not that you want. So I did the Inca Trail with three friends back in 2011, so the trail to Machu Picchu. It was an interesting mix, though. I went with someone who at that time was one of my, um, my, my colleagues at work. We got along pretty well at work, and so this was, but this was our first big trip kind of outside of uh, work going together somewhere. She was planning some time off, and she was asking me, like, oh, what do you think is a good way to ask for this schedule so I can get this week off in September because I'm going to go hike the Inca Trail? And I was like, oh, you should take this time off, and by the way, you're going to take me. I'm going to go with you. <laughs> Within the first day of traveling together... The universe intervened and threw up the dream that Brian had envisioned. For the two girls, one of them actually unfortunately got food poisoning on like the first, just before the first day, in addition to the altitude sickness, because it is fairly high up. So because of that, she wanted to go a lot more slowly. And um, then her best friend, the other girl on the trip, also wanted to like keep her company. And then our tour guide also wanted to make sure that they were doing okay. So he held back with them. And so the other guy is a cross-country runner. And I'm not. I'm a swimmer. I love swimming, but I'm, I've never really done any major hiking or jogging before. So he, Speedy Gonzalez, like on this entire, like every day, like he would already, he'd be like one of the first people already at the next campsite by lunchtime. And it really was more like 10 or 11 people who would also be like running around with our tents and our, our chef who had to cook for like three different types of food allergies. So I was in this middle Thing where I wasn't so I wasn't as slow as the girls, but I wasn't as fast as the other guy. So I actually spent most of this trail by myself, even though it was supposed to be a group of four. Brian experienced involuntary solo travel when the group disperses. And the first day is supposed to be is kind of the easy day. So you, it's a more gentle slope that you start walking up along the way. You look over. Um, Vista points, viewpoints, and you see different old ruins of Inca stuff. Some of them are really cool. They're already very, like, a lot of terrace, almost like pancakes lying on top of each other with kind of interesting sort of curves and because they follow the different streams and rivers that undulate underneath them. And so there's a lot of cool views that you see, especially on that first day, a couple sort of old buildings that were storage huts and stuff that on the original trail that you walk past. Um, near the end of the first day is when you finally get a little bit of that ascent. You start going up some stairs. He did, warn, he, he did tell us, like, you know, if you can handle the first day, then I'll, I'll have a good sense that you'll handle the rest of the trip. 
And, um, but it was also good for our friend who had the food poisoning because it was pretty gradual for her while she was getting over it. And then by the time that she was feeling better, that's when she had to actually start going uphill. And so that was actually a lot of alone time for me, a lot of self-reflective time because other than a few um, Sherpas, porters carrying the tents around me at a fast pace, I was basically just walking this entire mountain by myself. <laughs> so it really was a time just to like kind of expect, like figure out who I am and what my strengths are and aren't because there was just no one else really to talk to, no one else around me. It was lonely at times, especially sometimes frustrating because again, I was supposed to be doing this with three people I could talk with. Instead, I'm just kind of there by myself, but I, it was just so, it was too frustrating to walk slowly. I have, I'm tall. I'm actually about six foot three. So I have long legs. It's hard for me to walk slow with the, the girls, but again, I just couldn't catch up with the other guy. We mentally prepare ourselves differently when we travel with people versus being alone. And when the opposite happens, we have to adjust. Brian compares this time when he intentionally traveled alone. The week that I did in Greece, just sort of like a post-graduation relaxation, like I knew I was just going to go by myself. So it was sort of I get there, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go out and meet people now. I'm going to go to the tavern, I'm going to go to the beach and just see whoever I stumble upon and I'm kind of go from there. But this one really was sort of like, well, do I make friends or do I just like wait until the next three hours when I might run into my group again when they're either, when I'm either ahead of them or they're ahead of me. And so, because I guess if I had already planned to just do this trail by myself and walking by myself, that would be something I was already sort of like mentally prepared for. I probably would bring out the headphones a lot sooner just to like listen to music. But now it's sort of like, oh, I thought I was going to be with people. I don't, I was, I had all these stories I wanted to talk about, or I was like ready to just start laughing. Like as this whole trip was supposed to be like laughing and laughing and making all these inside jokes and new stories to recount on for years. And now it's sort of like, oh, I'm just here. <laughs> I asked him what it was like to have to walk in solitude when the company he wanted was at a distance. I guess in some ways it does feel even more lonely. Well, I just time in my head to like reflect and think like, okay, what is my purpose for doing this? <laughs> what is my, what made me decide I want to do this, but I've never been a hiker in my life. I asked him what he reflected on when the only noise around him was the scraping of his shoes against the Andes. And like I said, it's very weird, especially this real moments where like the porters would just run by with everything because they do this all the time. So they're very fast running the trail. And so it's like, you know, I feel alone. Then also I'm like, I have to move out of the way for like these five people who are carrying 40 pounds on their back. And then there, there I am just again by myself after they've run off in the distance. And so in some ways, yeah, it just felt even lonelier because it was just, it was just me surrounded by people who were elsewhere out. I don't know. I was just a little bit more stubborn and just didn't put on any kind of music, bring out any other kind of distractions. Cause I, I kept thinking like, okay, I'll get to speak with people again soon or I just need to get up this damn mountain and then I'll finally get there soon. <laughs> so it was sort of like, even when I was feeling frustrated, it was sort of like, okay, well, I've already made this choice. There's no turning back, literally. So I might as well just accept it and keep going, keep going forward, both on the trail, but also just going forward with the, the trip. I think the key thing for me too is also, sometimes I would get a little testy with the, the friend at the time. And I think just kind of like realizing and pulling back from it and realizing like, my frustration that it didn't turn out to be this for this group of four merrily walking along at, at all times. So kind of just realizing like, okay, am I being snappy because there's a natural reason to be angry at her? Or is it just me kind of projecting stuff? And do I need to just sort of learn how to calm that, move past it and just like focus on the times that we are now finally hanging out. So let's work on being friends and, ha and finally having the good memories now that we're at the campsite, now that we're finally getting uh, lunch together. Let's enjoy these moments as opposed to being a little resentful that, oh, I came all the way down to Peru and now I'm just by myself. After a hundred hours of solitude, Brian was finally able to have the trip he so painfully anticipated. The date three is probably where you get to see the, the coolest stuff. You walk past a lot of different forts and stuff that were on the Inca Trail. It's pretty high up still. So you're walking through cloud forest and other kind of forest areas. But that was the day that I got to see the most stonework other than the actual Machu Picchu itself. And so that was really cool. The way that was organized, that was actually the day where we were all were condensed together. So I finally did get like a day of walking with them after the other day where I was all on my own. And then the last day, you wake up at like 4 a.m. in the morning. So that way you can walk 
about a mile or so, and then you that you you get to the Sun Gate at Machu Picchu, so you can watch the sunrise over the site. Brian learned the hard way that even if you choose to travel with others, you still have to rely on yourself. Forcing connections is like trying to light a wet match. Rowan pulled up to a Dutch strip mall and parked in front of a fast food joint that kind of looked like a Chinese restaurant in the States. The banner was a cheap neon sign sandwiched between a hair salon and a liquor store. What is Suriname's food? Where is that? Well, Suriname is on the northern tip of South America. It was a Dutch colony, and we have some of the best Surinamese food outside of its country. The Dutch brought people from Indonesia, India, China, Africa. It kind of blended all of its colonies in this tiny little tip above Brazil. And the food is a big reflection of that. Um, that sounds amazing. I never expected I would be eating South American food in the Netherlands. And honestly wouldn't have known to go for it without a local insight. We stepped inside and my nose was assaulted by the overpowering smells. It was like nothing I had ever experienced before. The wafts of noodles, rice, Indian spices, meats, bread, coconut, cabbage, fish, all of it. Like someone had taken whatever was left in their spice cabinet and thrown it together. But the taste was much more intentional. I happily let Rowan take the wheel with ordering, and I trusted Rowan with anything that he ordered. We then drive up to his place, I grab my bag, and we go into his apartment. It was a modern, minimalist space. Everything was white and from Ikea, but Dutch Ikea. His roommates and friend were sitting on a small table and chairs in the kitchen. His roommates are immediately welcoming. And as I slurp down noodles and soup, Rowan quietly leaves the room, and Bart, Luke, and I keep eating and talking. I don't really remember what we talked about, but it was an endless conversation. It probably followed the sporadic journey that I had taken to get to their kitchen. If we trace the lines of my adventure of these past four months, it looked like a schizophrenic spiderweb, jumping over countries every which way to avoid getting a visa. And then we talked about the future. We talked about Morocco and Medinas and spices, which would soon be my present. We talked as if we were catching up instead of introducing. Then at a certain point, somewhere around three in the morning, I toppled over onto their couch and got a good three hours of sleep. I can sleep on the plane. I seemed to bond faster than two opposing atoms to Rowan, Bart, and Luke. But part of me wonders if that was just because I was in the wild whims of travel, high on adventure, or if we actually got along. Are they people that I would have hung out with if I lived here? Would we get brunch on the weekends and see movies together? Sometimes when you travel, you want to get along with whoever is around you. Not necessarily because you're meant to be friends. It can be a strange, emotional strain on the heart. That's how my friend Carla feels sometimes when she travels with her coworkers. Carla has travel written into her contract and is always accompanied by coworkers. So clear lines are set at the office because everyone is paid to be there. You get to know bits and pieces of your coworkers' life, glance at a photo on their desk, or notice a stamp on their wrist from a party the night before. But how do these work boundaries adjust when we cross borders together? I asked Carla what it was like to have an intense travel experience with coworkers thousands of miles out of the office. With work relationships, there's like this weird thing around it where it's like, oh, these are your professional relationships mm -hmm. and your professional life doesn't cross over in your regular life. Right. Which, to some extent, I understand because you spend so much time with them that if you spend any more time with them than you already did, <laughs> that would be way, way too much. Like, kind of like you how you see them more than you see your family and friends. So, but it's also there's you know that you're going home at the end of the day. You know mm -hmm. that this person isn't going to be following you. You're not going to be hanging out with them anymore. Mm -hmm. You know that there's. 
a termination. So what is that like when you have to travel with them? Especially Mm -hmm. if you're traveling for several days. Mm -hmm. I mean, it gets really amplified, Mm -hmm. obviously, because you're with them kind of 24-7. And it's in this kind of weird in-between space because you know it's going to end eventually, but because you're kind of stuck with them for over 24 hours at a time, you do develop this weird Stockholm syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) Not to say I don't like the people that I travel with. For the most part, I do. Mm -hmm. But you still develop like a weird, all of a sudden, because we're with each other for this long, I'm going to tell you everything. And like, we're just going to talk about all of this stuff because we've mm-hmm. run out of things to talk about that are normal. <laughs> so you just find yourself like, in second grade, I was, yeah, I found yeah. a penchant for, yeah. Yeah. Because it's like an endless conversation that you're having with this person. Right. That like, like there aren't a ton of people that I've traveled with where it's like, oh, we can just be quiet next to each other. Right. Unless it's, like, a long car drive or something, and then there's maybe, like, breaks. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, there's, like, a running conversation. So you say that you get kind of a Stockholm Syndrome when it's happening. What does it feel like when you're no longer traveling with that person? I think it's definitely not the same thing as... When you're leaving, like, a friend Mm -hmm. or someone you, like, actually spend outside of work time with. Right. Like, for that type of leaving, it does feel like, oh, I'm missing a limb or, like, I'm missing this, like, part. Mm -hmm. But with coworkers and, like, traveling with people professionally, when I leave them, it feels like, oh, the end of the workday is here. Wow. So, like, I'm like, ah, now I can, like, finally sit and be quiet by myself and, like, think about my own things and, like, go back to my regular life. That sounds exhausting. Because you're, I mean, you're, like, kind of on for... That whole time. That whole time. Yeah. It took me a really long time to get used to that. But at certain, like, at some point, if it's a multi-day thing and you're with someone for long enough, you both kind of break down as humans and you don't care anymore, <laughs> which is nice. Like, it, it, there literally, like, there's a point, at least for me, I know, like, with some of the people I work with, they just don't have this barrier. But for me, I have, like, a personal, like, oh, my body's breaking down right now. I'm just going to be goofy. Who cares what you think? I'm just going to eat what I want. Like, it, the <laughs> professional barrier breaks down for me like maybe a little bit earlier Mm. and and it's a self-imposed thing too because it you know like who cares like everyone's just like people yeah like why do I have to be this professional around you right when I'm spending this long of a time of my life next to you like I don't I don't have to like put on pretenses or like yeah build this theater around it And for the most part, like, it's fine. Like, I've realized that it's not a big deal anymore. Mm -hmm. Carla recounts a time where the work boundaries dissolved faster and the moments seemed more intimate. I was traveling to Nairobi with two clients, a coworker, and a bodyguard <laughs> because their company were nice enough to their employees where they were like, oh, this is a potentially dangerous country because there's a lot of pickpocketers or whatever. I don't know what the levels of threats are, but it was enough for them to send a security team to look after the two clients. Um, we did not get one. <laughs> <laughs> so if you guys so were we, intact, we, we mooched off of their security. Um, <laughs> He's protecting me too. <laughs> yeah, but that was probably one of the strangest 
travel experiences that I've had. Mm-hmm. One, because, you know, how many times in your life are you going to travel with a body, like a literal bodyguard? And it was like, you know, he would scope out the place before you went there. Like you had to announce where you were going. Then he would go there first. They would check it out, report back. Okay, it's fine. And then we go. So you're traveling with these bodyguards and these two clients. And it's like a really intense project. And my coworker is like, she's done with them. Like they are, they weren't the most polite and they were like fairly demanding and to a somewhat unreasonable standard. After, after the research session, I mean, like we're literally in like Kenya, which, you know, how many times do you get to go there for work? So we were like, you know, let's make the most of this. Let's, my coworker is kind of like fuming in the background. These two clients are like ready to party and I'm kind of stuck in between because I'm also ready to party. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm in, like, I'm not going to like get mad or like do anything. I'm going to like enjoy myself because I'm freaking here and that's awesome. And my coworker leaves and that was like kind of a relief to me because I was like, okay, like she's not going to be a mega bummer. on this like very cool trip anymore even though the clients are there yeah and like we're kind of on each other's sides because we're like oh well you know that's all good and done like great like we did the work now let's like do something fun and this coworker didn't stay for the something fun she like just like came in did the work and left which like still astounds me but we were like, hell yeah, now that we're here, let's go on a safari. Like we didn't have, none of us had anything planned. And so that's what we decided to do. So we got up at like four in the morning with the bodyguard team. The one who was not incredibly hungover came with us. So we went, one of the clients was like still super hungover. They had like gone out and like mega partied. I went home early. And she kind of just, like, passed out in the back of the car. For most of it, she was, like, kind of passed out with her mouth, like, gaping open. And me and this other client were, like, you know, watching and, like, tapping each other and, like, being like, oh, my God, like, look at that rhinoceros and, like, look at all these zebra and just, like, seeing crazy shit. Because at the same time in the safari park, you could see the city skyline of Nairobi in the background. So it was like the literal savanna and then a cityscape. And there were wild animals just roaming everywhere. It's like kind of insane. And the sun had just started rising. And then I realized that I had gone on another honeymoon trip with this like client team. And we were on this like honeymoon safari together for the rest of the day, like we went to an elephant orphanage and we fed giraffes and all of this stuff. And then it was time to go home. So, you know, I spent this like super intense trip with these people who were like terrible to me and then super nice to me. And I was like, what are you doing with my feelings right now? But then we just like we kind of said goodbye and like I could see it in like one of them who doesn't travel as often I was like genuinely like oh I will like miss you like miss hanging out with you and this was really fun I hope I see you again one day and with the other client who was very like travel worn and like didn't care she was like okay peace bye (laughs) it's like okay great (laughs) of course but With the one person, I was like, oh, yeah, like, I'll actually, like, that was really nice. And we had all these pictures of us, like, in the car and, like, petting animals and whatever that we all, like, kind of passed around on this group thread. But at the end of the day, like, I look back at those pictures and I was like, so weird to have such cool pictures with, like, kind of strangers who, like, wouldn't care to say hi to me now. 
but we have these like beautiful travel photos together and it's super weird. It's a completely like weird feeling to have. And with like a handful of that type of travel and with those types of people, I have felt like this weird artificial closeness with them Hmm. of like, oh yeah, now we're best friends, right? Like, it feels like at the end, like we make jokes and like it's funny and like you're having a great time and you're seeing all these world wonders together. Like, it's awesome. And I think those are the ones where I get even like, even more confused by because unlike some of these ones where maybe it was really just like we didn't make a super strong connection like but with like a handful of people I would you know it was actually like fun to hang out with them and with the fun people I'm like oh so that didn't mean anything to you (laughs) Like, oh, was I not fun enough? Was I not funny enough? I thought we made funnies together. (laughs) I know. But at the end of the day, you, like, go home, and it doesn't, like, really mean anything anymore. It's so sad. Yeah, I know. I think that Carla's experience highlights our need to bond, even if it's with the closest breathing body. We want others to bear witness to the wonders that we are seeing, an external validation, a hand to squeeze when it feels like too much, or someone to just turn to and say, wow. But not all of Carla's travel experiences are so emotionally vacant, because we've spent significant time abroad together, Berlin, Morocco, Massachusetts, Singapore. Over 10 years and 10 countries, we keep finding ourselves talking until 3 in the morning. It actually surprises me how we haven't run out of things to say to each other. But we can also sit in silence. And that I value more. To share a quiet moment and not feel the need to fill it with wasted words. For over a decade, we have watched each other mature and age. Promotions, breakups her first gray hair. I feel so honored to watch her get older. Travel is the truest test of a relationship, and I firmly believe I love Carla so dearly because we have not only traveled together, but choose to see each other once we come home. But I can't wait to see where we go next. The next morning, Rowan pulls up to the airport and says, Adrian, you've really inspired me. I've wanted to go to India for a while, and I think you were the push to do it. Oh my god, Rowan, that's so sweet. I open the door and stick a leg out, and then turn around and say, Wait, before I go, why did you pick me up? Well, you obviously looked like you were hitchhiking, with your backpack and everything, and I didn't want someone else to pick you up and hurt you. I used to hitch all the time and wanted to pay it back. I feel my throat start to close a bit. I had noticed that the world had been the most rewarding on the days I was my boldest. He could have easily taken advantage of me. But the farther I traveled, the more I saw that the world is more protective than predatory. I gave him a hug padded by our winter coats, rolled out of his car, and ran to go catch my flight. I was high from that adventure, but my journey had been filled with these microwave moments where I met someone who I didn't know existed maybe 12 hours before, and we would end up traveling together, watch each other's things at a bus station, share snacks, or tell each other more intimate truths then we were willing to tell our loved ones back home. It was an expedited relationship, faster than an email. When we travel with others, we see things that we could have never seen on our own. If mine and Rowan's paths didn't cross, maybe I would have just hung out at my couch to first place for the night and gotten to bed at a reasonable hour. Or maybe I missed a potential friendship and another wild adventure. But I knew by that point 
point that finding people you jive with is rare. So I listened to my gut and I knew that I wanted to keep driving down the road with Rowan. The moments that we spend with people outside of our homeland are a strange set. We experience others in times that they might not even know how to handle themselves. So if you see someone in their rawest moments, untethered from the comforts of home, and still think that they're wonderful to be with, keep them, keep them, keep them. Now that we know where we are and who we're traveling with, we're going to go wander around. We will talk to travelers who have explored the full limits of exploration and were pleasantly surprised with what they found. Throw your map out. We don't need directions for where we're going. Next time on Strangers Abroad.